then we can do that. Okay? Put eyes and hands on those folks and let them know their love. Now, I do this because sometimes we, we struggle with, okay, you know, I'm you know, I'm a, I'm a mom and dad and we're raising our kids and we're wanting this to be good, you know, and they are just not focused. And they're not. You know why? Because you weren't. Okay? Trust me, I remember. Alright? Uh, so the idea is that you're paying for your raise. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but the idea is that we have to all go through that. Don't think you're the Lone Ranger on that. We're going to love you through it just like somebody loved us through it. Let us, let us. <coughs> so nugget of wisdom number two, last week. Young people are voicing that Jesus is not popular. It's not a cool thing. Right? Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, you know, Spider-Man and, and Thor. Those are the, those are cool things. You've got your Marvel comics, you've got Pixar, you've got Happy Meals. You know, how, do you, how, do, how does the church compete with that? The answer is we don't. We don't compete with it. What we do with is that we remind young people, this is where you come when the wheels fall off. This is where you come when the wheels fall off. And the way we do that is we, have to, we, we, we answer this question. Who do young people turn to when they're in trouble? Okay? They don't go to Spider-Man. Just to answer that question. Right? They go to the people who are consistently there for them. So what I'm telling you as parents, what I'm telling us as, as a church, is that we need to surround our young people with church on a consistent basis. Right? Be that people for them that they feel comfortable coming to. Be that dynamic, consistent, powerful presence of God in their life. So that they know when the wheels fall off and they need direction or they need comfort or they need just a place to come and worship Right, like we talked about before, that they're going to be a part that they know this is the place or that they come to. All right, First Thessalonians two and verse eight says it this way: So we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well. So that was last week. Okay? High tech, high touch, be the place where they come when the wheels fall off. Nugget of wisdom number three. This is a new one, so you might want to pay attention to this one. Young people feel that their spiritual formation, that their development spiritually, is stunted because churches are not engaging them as a generation. In other words, they're not plugging them in. Right? They're not plugging them in. That's a frustration. I remember being 17 years old. Going through all the things that 17-year-olds go through. And... Uh, let me stop there from what 17 reminded me of something. Is anybody here under the age of 17? Anybody, raise your hand. Under the age of 17, right? Under the age of 17, okay? Brent and Gary, okay, are not 17. They're older than that, but they're going to help you do something for me, okay? If you're under the age of 17, Brent and Gary are going to help you, and they're going to give you a songbook, okay, and I need you to take that to lunch for me. Will you do that for me? Because I'm going to use it in my sermon over there, but I need to have songbooks over there. And I figure if you're under the age of 17, you can carry a songbook, right? Okay, can you do that for me? Good. All right. So they're saying, okay, I remember being 17 and saying, you know what? You know, where do I fit in? Okay. And this is a generation. It's a little different. Younger people are self-diagnosed as FOMO. Okay. The fear of missing out. That's what that stands for. FOMO. Fear of missing out. And they want to be everywhere doing everything that they want to do. Right? And so they like to keep their options open rather than committing to something or someone. 
And it's far less likely that a younger generation wants to be affiliated with a church or, a, 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 or, or pre, like previous generations were. That naturally leads to a weak commitment to a local church. Okay? And discipleship uh, and long obedience formation are hard to do that way. Okay? It's that consistency quotient kind of thing. You have to show up sometimes. So what do we do with that as a church? Okay? Well, we look at our young people square in the eye and we say, look, any up and all in. Okay? Now you're going to think, wait a minute, I've heard those terms before. Yes. Okay? I took those from uh, a game of chance. Can I say that? It is required that is required of all players that when they show up to play that game of chance, they put in an initial investment. They ante up. Okay? Uh, other than just showing up to the gathering and eating food. This puts a certain amount of ownership into the hand being played. It requires focus. It applies skill. As the hand continues and the stakes get higher, the player will want to put in all that he has into the game for a chance to win. That's called going all in. Now, if you recognize that, and I question why you would, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you understand that terminology, then let me oversimplify and put it this way. Church will require an investment not just showing up occasionally or for special events. Right. Got it? So we have to remind them, okay, you've got to ante up. It's a team sport, a unified effort. But as the stakes get higher, as you get older, as you go from junior high to high school, for instance, as you go from high school to college, as you go from college into family or parenting, right, as the stakes get higher in battling evil or raising kids or being evangelistic, we need everybody to put into, into the collective effort. It's that thing in first, uh, first, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. It's the four-generation concept. Paul writes to Timothy, he, said, he says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There was a Paul who taught a Timothy, generation 1, generation 2. Okay? There's a Timothy who teaches someone who will teach someone else, generation three, generation four. What I'm telling you is this. We have to be preparing generation four. And the way we do that is engaging these young people now, all right, in their spiritual formation. I'm not talking about just having them stand up here and lead a song and look cute. I'm not saying that they just put a Christmas card together and take it out to the nursing home. I'm talking about spiritual formation when they actually develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we have to be a part of that. You are a part of that. As a church, we have to look at our young people and say, we want to form that. But to do that, we all have to ante up and we all have to go all in. All right? That means if we're going to plan it, you show up for it. If we're going to do it, then you participate. And more than that, you do it. Okay? Don't wait for somebody to say, hey, you know what? We'll cook the hot dogs if you'll come. That's not, one, has nothing to do with spiritual formation. And second of all, is that it's all about serving you. You become the planner. You become the person okay, who says, look, I need to meet for Bible study. And I'd like to meet with a group of you on Tuesday mornings at 6.30 for prayer. You be the person who does that. And guess what? I can point five or six people right here, right now who would show up. 
but we're waiting for you to ante up and all in. Now let's get to today's lesson. Today's lesson. James told me before church, we, we talked to each other yesterday about the sermon. He said, you know, you didn't make it easy for me picking songs. You know, kind of thing. When you talk about idols, right? Turn to Colossians chapter 3. We need to talk about idols on a day like today because it is one of those things that you don't talk about often enough. But once we kind of pull the curtain back and you kind of look at its ugliness, it's the Oz effect. Right? What I mean by that is this. Remember the story of the Wizard of Oz? Okay, toward the end, Dorothy and all of her friends, they get to the Emerald City and they pull it back. And all the beautiful, wonderful things that are happening are by a little shriveled up old man. And the wizard himself. Okay? Once you pull the curtain back on, the, on, on, on this thing, you're going to see that idols really are something that we create. And they're ugly in themselves because they represent a part of ourselves we really don't want to do that kind of thing. Call them illness. We hear a lot about idols. Mostly we hear about that from the franchise itself. Okay? Worldwide. Uh, but I have to answer three questions. What's an idol? All right. What does an idol look like in today's world? Why are they dangerous? I'm going to go to one verse to answer all three questions. I'll, 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 I'll splinter off from there. Kind of thing with, with the support for that. Question number one. What is an idol? All right. Now, you probably know it's a thing that we give our worship to as if it were divine. It's the thing loved or the person loved more than God. It's wanted more than God. It's desired more than God. It's treasured more than God. It's enjoyed more than God. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 1 verse 25. He says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, anything that is created, rather than the creator. There's a three-way test that you'll know whether something is an idol or not. Uh, if you will, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. Give you the three-way test so that you'll know. In January 2017, issue of AARP, I'm happy to say that I can read that. Thank you. Just saying. 2017 issue of AARP, actress Helen Myron said, The theater became my religion, and I wanted to serve it. There's your difference right there. She admitted to, to you that that's my religion, and I serve it. She may believe in God, but her religion is the theater, and she serves the theater. There's your difference. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, to be raised from the dead Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So let's talk about that for a moment. What's that three-way test? Look at that verse, and you can underline it this way. An idol is something that turns you away from God. It turns you away from God. Secondly, if you look at that verse, an idol is something that you serve instead of God. An idol is something you serve instead of God. And the third thing that that verse points out to us is an idol is something that you wait for to claim a climax of blessing or a favor. In other words, you're putting your investment in expecting something in return that's going to give you a positive of some way. In Exodus 32, you're going to remember it was a golden calf. In Isaiah 44, it was a block of wood. Okay? In Acts chapter 19, it was the silver statue of a woman named Diana. But if you go back to Colossians chapter 3, where there is a list of earthly things, he says there in 3 and verse 5, 
Okay? Put to death, therefore, these earthly things. Okay? That become, he says, idolatry. Those things are personal choices that you make. You make something an idol. It doesn't just jump on you. It doesn't just happen at you. It doesn't just, you wake up one day and go, wow, how did I get in front of this idol? You choose. Okay? Anything that swallows your attention and devotion. Anything that devours your time and money. Anything that you anticipate will provide you some blessing or favor. The object is real. It has certain power over your priorities. And you expect something enchanting from it. Because you just keep putting into it. Because you just keep expecting something from it. Okay? Now, that's what an idol is. Okay? You wake up one day, no. You're making a choice. We talk a lot about church attendance. Okay? I want to tell you something. People choose to be here. And I want to thank you for choosing to be here today. We're worshiping God. I chose to come today because I wanted to worship God. How about you? Amen. Amen. Okay? And I appreciate sharing that worship with you. So thank you. Question number two. What does idolatry then look like today? What does it look like? This presumes that you have such an object. That you make it a practice to revere and adore it with a certain observances. Okay? Something you do consistently for it. In Colossians 3 verse 5... There are certain practices that he talks about. The logic works this way. If you work it this way, when you identify the practice, you'll find the object. Make sense? If I identify the practice, I'll find the object that's causing it. There are at least five that he points to. I'm going to do these quickly. And this is how I'm going to do it. They're not exhaustive, but they're representative. So if you want to write them down, you can follow them out. You'll see others as examples of other places. But let me share with you the definition. We'll look at the word or phrase. I'll share with you a definition. I'll give you an idea of what it's looking at. And I'll give you one example. I can't give you all the examples, but I can give you one. Okay. There in chapter 3, verse 5 of Colossians, you're there and he says, first of all, he lists, he says, so put aside then sexual immorality. The definition is this. The word is in, in, the, in the original is porneia. Yes, that's where we get our word pornography. Literally, it means to sell off sexual purity. Translated, oftentimes it's translated other places as fornication. Okay? The idea is the practice of sexual activity outside the marriage. Right? Let me give you an example, just since it's pretty obvious. Computer pornography time can become an idol we worship. Because it sucks in your attention, it sucks in your time, and you're doing things that you know are not right. Second, impurity. He says there in 3 and verse 5, impurity. Definition, it literally means not clean. Okay, related to desire or thirst. Okay. The idea is an activity that causes us to be polluted. It pollutes us. Okay, taints us, if you will. An example is, is what you live for after work, or you can't wait to do on the weekend. If that taints your soul, then that place, that can or glass, okay, or those people can become an idol that we worship. If that's what you're living for, if that's what you can't wait for at the end of the day or for the weekend, then that can become an idol that you worship. It consumes your money, time, interest, and you put it in front of God. Number three, passion. 
He says, definition, literally, it's a raw, strong feelings of the mind or emotions not guided by God. That's the literal translation. The idea is that it's emotional explosions. Stabs in the back. Those snarky comments. And we just call it old-fashioned gossip. Let me give you an example. It's what we call drama in relationships. When the drama comes up, whether it's online, in person, by text or phone, that can become an idol that we worship. We literally live for the drama. Boy, that can become an idol that we worship. Number four, evil desire. Definition, literally means an inappropriate desire. The idea is something that you really, really want that's outside of God's plan for your life. You really, really want it. It's not bad in and of itself, but you really, really want it even when it's outside of God's plan for your life. Let me put it to you this way. God's plan, 1 Peter chapter 1, is for you to be holy. He's planned for you to be holy and He he desires that you worship Him. Whatever you are going to be doing that takes you away from honoring Him as He directs, that's what we're talking about here. Let me give you an example. And all of us have have been there and we will understand this. A desire for family time is a good thing in and of itself. We need more time as families. But when we desire family time and forsake the worship of God excessively, we've traded family time for honoring God. Now we've moved outside of God's plan. Something that was good in and of itself, but we moved outside of God's plan. That can become an idol that we worship. The last one is covetousness. By definition, it literally means an evil desire for numerically more than others. You just want more. I don't want just what I have. I want what I have. I want what you have. And I want what I have. And you have. And you have. I just want more than the next guy. Like he who dies with the most toys. Still dies. I'm sorry. Lock your bubble. But that's the way it works. The idea is found in Luke 12 and verse 21. Remember the rich man, he had this bumper crop and he says, I will tear down my barn and build bigger barns, but not be rich toward God. We're going to be blessed in our lives. That's never the question. The rich man there was blessed, but it says in 12 and verse 21, he was not rich toward God. There's a balance there. Patrick B. Crisfoli put it this way. Most people in life go for the fast nickel and you need to go for the slow dime. And what I meant by that was this, and this is my example to you. Covetousness, wanting just more and more and more. The example is credit card indulgences. Everybody's got them, everybody uses them. When a credit card indulgence threatens to consume your income and your budget, that can become an idol that you worship. You need to think about that. Now you're saying, but Scott, credit cards are part of the life. Yes, they are. Family time is a part of life. Yes, it is. Computer time is a part of life. Yes, it is. I'm not saying these things are to be avoided. They're just a part of your life. What I'm telling you is they can become an idol in your life and you will worship it. It will consume you and you will serve it if we let it. 
It's our choice. Question number three. Why are idols then dangerous? Look again at Colossians chapter 3 verse 6. And it answers the question for you. In Colossians 3 verse 6. The wrath of God is coming upon idolatry. Do I need to say anything else? The wrath of God. Nothing is more dangerous than the wrath of an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-righteous God. Now, why would that be? Well, I go back to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. You have your Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself a graven or carved image, or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why does the wrath of God come? The wrath of God comes on the idolater because God is a jealous God. His jealousy is righteous because God deserves our deepest, strongest admirations, affections, and His judgment, His jealousy is, is loving. And I say that this way, it's a loving jealousy because we were made to find our greatest joy when God is our greatest treasure. <laughs> You can write that down somewhere. I love that. I borrowed that from somebody, by the way. We were made to find our greatest joy when God is our greatest treasure. God is jealous that we be satisfied treasuring Him. If we find God to be so boring or so negligible that we have to put other things in His place that really satisfy us more than He does then we not only offend Him, but we also destroy ourselves in the process. And those two things make God angry. They make God angry. He doesn't want to be offended. won't put up with it. And He doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. So with all the love that He has in His heart, God doesn't want you to harm yourself he wants to be the focus of your complete love and devotion. Idolatry contradicts both of those things. So his wrath comes upon the idolater, who has traded the truth of God for the worship of the creation and not the creator. Let's go back. I have a pomegranate tree that grows next door, and I've been watching it the last few weeks because nobody lives there and I know this is pomegranate tree and it's starting to put off it's just about time for the pomegranates okay can't wait for that alright you ever had pomegranate okay if you've ever had pomegranate you know it's worth waiting for but, you know, it's just slowly coming and I kept waiting for it because you know I think man you know where does that come from well that fruit comes from a branch that branch is connected to the tree that tree has a root Okay, so that that tree has been watered. Trust me. Okay, I, I, make, I make sure I take care of it. I water the tree. Okay, so that it can produce the fruit. Yes. All right. But here's the idea: it's not going to produce apples. It's not going to produce pears. It's going to produce pomegranates. Why? Because the roots are in the soil are pomegranate roots. Let me put it to you this way. Okay. As you see, idolatry at its root. What's planted is the activity of the human heart. What you are planting is what we're seeing. It's what God is seeing. So what we're putting roots down, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. 
That's a root that you're planting. Anything you're loving more than God, anything that you're loving more than God, but ought to be loved less than God, is a root that you're planting. And anything you're loving more than God that is not for the sake of God, that's a root that you're planting. This is an idol. And what happens is then your tree is showing the fruit of either a com complete commitment in God or it's showing us idolatry. It is why the wrath of God has come. And it is why it is pervasive everywhere in our culture. There are people who are not here today who could not be here because of sickness or they're taking care of family or we're going to be ministering to them this week. But there are people who are not here today that you look at their lives and what are they showing us by their fruit? Are they showing us a commitment? Are they showing us idolatry? And it depends on what they're planting their roots in. Now, when we turn to Christ from idols, Colossians 3 verse 6 is very, very clear. When we turn to Christ from idols, we escape the wrath of God. <clears throat> Why? Because God is for us. God loves us. God came to save us through Christ on the cross. And a God who loves you so much wants nothing more than for you to love Him with all that we have. And that's God's invitation to us today. Simply make God the love of our life. To make Him the focus of our devotion. To worship. To become holy like Him. And if we need to rethink that in our life, if we need to turn from idols, let's do that today. Let's do that today. Let's not replace God with anything else. Maybe that means you need to turn your back on the world as did the Thessalonians. And put Christ on in baptism to, to make this that watershed moment where people say, look, on that day, I turned away from the world and I want to serve God. Maybe you're here today and you've planted roots and it's not producing what it needs to do. Maybe we need to repent, replant, recommit. Let's pray about that. Maybe we're here today and we're just going through some things that we need help with. Let's do that as well. Let's pray together and minister to each other. But if you need to come, come to the front and make your need known now. Together we stand. And that's what we say.